All right, so I'm going to go ahead and start praying here, and uh, then we'll get started on our Bible study. So if you're following along, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 4. So I said last week we we're going to be in chapter 4, but I didn't pay attention to the fact that we hadn't finished chapter 3. We finished chapter 3 last week. I thought it was a good, fruitful week for sure. Um, and uh, so this week we're going to be in chapter 4. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And of course, uh, that is going to be, I got to get out of the way of that deal we got over there. Um, that's going to be on the screen up here, right there. Okay. And for those of you that you can get your own copy of scripture, obviously, you can do that as well. Um, but let's pray together before we, uh, we begin here. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together with these that are here in the room and also uh, for those who will join us online, for those who will join us via the podcast. And uh, I pray that you'll open your word up so that we can understand it. Uh, I pray that we will be willing to be moved, not just tonight emotionally for a moment, but that we will allow your word to make permanent changes to our thought life. And that will make permanent changes to our lives and our behavior our attitudes. And uh, so uh, you have heard the prayer requests that were asked earlier in this room, and I pray that you will attend to each of those requests for others that people might have for uh, financial needs, relational needs, needs for healing, um, need for uh, wisdom, uh, need for just hope, encouragement. I pray that you will provide all of that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So go ahead and open your scripture there, and we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians, once again, as I said, chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read 1 through, 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, the Apostle Paul writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Oh, mercy. I have some stuff uh, that I could relate to you there. Um, so let's look at verse one, okay? Um, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Here's what the New International Biblical Commentary says about the passage that we just read. Quote, these verses begin by informing the Corinthians how they are to regard Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and other early Christian workers. Pause. Remember, that was what the conflict that precipitated Paul writing this letter was all about, is that they were all trying to follow these different leaders. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. It would be like, uh, you know, half the people in this church saying, oh, I'm a Pastor D, and the other half of people saying, oh, I'm a Pastor Craig. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to listen to Pastor D, I want to listen to Pastor Craig. No, I don't want to listen to Pastor Craig, I want to listen to Pastor D. We can't do that. You need to listen for what Jesus has to say through all these leaders. And so the Apostle Paul said, you know, I, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, God was giving the growth. God is building this building, this temple, and we are that temple. That's what we saw in chapter 3, right? So now he says, this is how you should regard us. That's what this is about. Continuing to read from the New International Biblical Commentary. They, these leaders, and any Christian leader you listen to, are merely servants and stewards. Pause. What is a steward? We don't even use that term anymore. What's a steward? Servant. A servant? Okay. A caretaker. A caretaker. That's, that, would be, that would be a good, a good way of, uh, of examining it as well. Caretaker. Okay, or a manager. A steward is a manager, right? A household manager. So um, Joseph was sold into slavery and he became the steward of Potiphar's house. So he, that means he was the, the servant who was in charge of managing Potiphar's affairs, right? Um, 
So that's what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, I want you to consider us as managers of the Lord's household, right? Um, so they're merely servants and stewards who are called to serve Christ as agents of the proclamation of the mysteries of God's grace. A single quality must characterize stewards, trustworthiness, or more literally, they must prove faithful. God requires that Paul and the others be faithful executors of the trust that has been placed in them. In turn, Paul informs the Corinthians that what they think of him as God's steward is of little or no importance. You see, it's God's household. So he's not concerned about other people's judgment. You know, this would free us a lot. In case I don't get to this, we stop worrying about what other people are thinking about us all the time, right? And we start uh, remembering that it is God's judgment that actually matters, right? Um, Let's see. In fact, he says that this is the commentary continuing that his opinion of himself is irrelevant because the Lord is the only one who judges. In a sense, Paul is freed by the Lord's being his sole judge, for he needs neither to worry about what others think nor be obsessed with evaluating his own performance. Paul is free to strive to be faithful, for in the end, Christ will judge him and all others. Then God will give uh, whatever praise is appropriate. So that's good. Um, once again, then, Paul goes back to the statement that he, Apollos, and the other Christian leaders are servants. William Barclay tells us about the Greek term for servant used here. Okay, so let's go back up. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Um, the word he used for servant is interesting, uh, William Barclay writes. It is huperites. And originally, it meant a rower on the third bank of a trireme. What's a trireme? So we look at those old ships, right? Um, when uh, the wind wouldn't carry the ship where they needed it, they had rows and rows of slaves that grabbed those oars and pulled them. If you've seen any old, you know, movies, then you've seen this. Uh, so. The, the third trireme was the under rower. So this was like the least important servant. So the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I'm not a big deal. I'm just a servant. I'm not trying to make a, you know, even though I'm saying I'm the steward and typically this would be like, okay, so somebody's in jail um, or in prison more specifically um, and they're trusted, they're called a trustee, right? And the trustees are given responsibility and they're allowed to, you know, manage certain things. So that's sort of an elevated position that requires trust. So these are, these are servants, and for a household servant, that would require trust. But Paul says, I'm not even telling you to elevate me to that degree, right? I'm just this kind of servant. That we should all be happy just to, uh, to be able to do anything for the Lord, right? We're constantly in our culture obsessed with self-esteem, Right? And we're insecure about people making fun of us or, or you know, not getting enough likes on Facebook or uh, you know, uh, somebody saying something that hurts our feelings and so forth. But the reality is Paul is saying, listen, I'm already telling you, I'm the, I'm the lowest of the low. He's already said, I don't deserve any of this because I once persecuted the church of God. And so you know, I probably none of us in this room have uh, held the coats of those that are stoning somebody, uh, but that's what the Apostle Paul did. He was a wholehearted supporter of the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, who basically just preached the gospel. So the Apostle Paul knew where he came from. Now realize when you come to Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. But it's not a bad idea to remember what you were. As otherwise, we assume that somehow we've earned what we are. You have not earned what you are in Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. So what does that do? That helps me to understand that no matter how far along I come, I'm still responsible to recognize that it's grace that brought me there. 
that this is important. I'm no more favored by God now than I was when I got first got saved when was in, and was in the middle of all of my mess. What does that tell me? When there are times, I won't say if, when there are times that I fall, I'm still favored because the favor that I have doesn't come as the result of what I've done or not done. My favor is God's favor that he bestows on me without anything, uh, uh, any condition whatsoever, right? So it has been said that a good definition of grace is to view it as an acronym. It's not an acronym, obviously, but if you viewed it as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Not at your expense. So did you earn your salvation? No. So when you fall short, I confess my sins because he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Uh, unlike you know, Catholicism where you go to the priest, you confess to the priest and he gives you penance to do, which by the way is not all that difficult. Seems like, you know, you, we do some terrible things and all you got to do is hit your rosary a few times and say some Our Fathers and, you know, some Hail Marys. That's, that's, that's what it became. That's why Martin Luther came along and said, this is, no, this is a no-go. Now, I don't often disparage any Christian brother, including Catholics. I think anybody that will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that their understanding is that he died on the cross, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day. We can have fellowship with those people. So I'm not disparaging Catholics in that respect. I'm simply saying that if we think we can work our way out of our mess, we haven't understood grace. And the Apostle Paul fully understood grace, even though uh, you will see as we progress through the Corinthian letters, uh, especially in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about all of the things that he's been through as the result of uh, his journey as an apostle, all of the beatings that he's dealt with, all of the stress that he's under, all of the difficulty and danger that he's faced. Um, but he's not saying that in order to gain more credibility with God. He's saying that because there were those that were coming into Corinth, and we see this in the second Corinthian letter, that were trying to basically uh, um, underrate Paul and derogate his authority and say, no, 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 we're more important than Paul. And Paul said, okay, you want to get into a contest? Here's the contest. And he talks about all of the difficult things that he went through and how hard. And he says very clearly at one point, I worked harder than all of them, talking about the other apostles. Even we're talking about the disciples that followed Jesus around when he was on earth. And Paul didn't have that opportunity. He's just playing. He's just being honest. I worked harder than all of them. But he doesn't believe that that gains him any credibility with God. You are saved by grace through faith or you're not saved. Jesus died on the cross. If you could work your way into heaven, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. That's why he died on the cross, was to give you that ability to overcome sin, to have your sins removed, so that you could have fellowship with God. So we have to constantly appeal to that grace. That here's another way of uh, describing it or defining grace, unmerited favor. What is merit, to merit something? What does that mean? To earn it. To earn it. Unearned favor. So there's a blessing that the, uh, the the priesthood was told to pronounce over the people of Israel um, in Leviticus. And um, it says uh, that, uh, may, the Lord's, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you grace. What does, it, what does it mean to lift up his countenance? That means to pay attention to you. May he make his face to shine upon you and uh, give you peace. What, is, what does it mean to make his face shine? It means he... See my new teeth? I'm smiling. I just got my braces off. Come on, people. Yay, team. 
That's been a long journey right there. And you notice I found a way to put it in the lesson. But I didn't plan that ahead. I just thought of it. But think about it. You know, when, when you value someone, you want them to pay attention to you, right? Hey, you know, those of you, you know, you, you have kids. Remember when they were little? Mommy, 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 mommy. Hey, daddy, look. Hey, daddy, look. Hey, daddy, look. It's like, you know, I see these parents and they're, they're beleaguered. They have these little kids. And I'm like, gosh, they're so cute. How can you not just pay attention to them all the time? And I'm like, no. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. They are super cute. But mommy, 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 daddy, daddy, daddy. Look, 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 look. We are attention vacuums. We're attention black holes. We just need that attention constantly, right? And that's what happens. Yeah, you know that. So, <laughs> you're littlest one, man. And then they become adults and they become vampires. Yep. Stuck in vampires. She, she's, she's always very, very, uh, you know, attention in a good way. She's attention seeking when I'm around, right? In a good way. You know, she's bumpy as she goes by or, you know, something like that. And then Craig's youngest, his little one, little Shiloh man, that dude. So on Tuesday, which is last night, our, our karate night, uh, Shiloh's in karate now. Got his little gi, looking, looking smooth, looking professional. And uh, so I always ask the kids, you know, who will pray? And I'm waiting for, you know, one of these older kids to, you know, perk up and say, hey, I'll pray. Dude, Shiloh just turned four. He's like, I'll pray, I'll pray. But he kind of doesn't really know what to pray. And so I let him pray one time, but I kind of went right next to him. So that, cause he's, he's real quiet and whatever. But if you ask any question, it, he doesn't have to know the answer. He just wants to raise his hand. You know this, right? You know what? That's in us. That's in all of us. And we're still God's children and we still need his attention. And this is the problem. So once we become teenagers, I did, teen, I did work with teenagers for many years, right? <clears throat> and I've said this, teenagers need acceptance. In the absence of acceptance, they will look for attention. And that includes attention of any kind. If they can't get good attention, they will get bad attention. But anything, for most teenagers, not all, but for most teenagers, anything is better than being ignored. That's in us. That's in all of us. We don't want to be ignored. Do you like posting something and having nobody pay attention to it? I'm telling you, Facebook is like high school, just carried on. It really is. And what we don't realize is that there, there's an algorithm that's working there and we think that nobody's paying attention to what we posted, but the reality is if you post a lot, unless people have chosen to follow you and uh, you know, get uh, some sort of notification every time you post or whatever, they may not even see it. That's true. I've noticed the more I post, the less responsive people are. If you just do like a couple of posts a day, you might get more. And the other thing is, you know, there's certain things that people are more interested and less interested in and, and so forth. But the point is, I think that that's in us. God chooses to pay attention to you. And that's grace. Right? So that blessing goes, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you uh, and, and, and be gracious to you. Excuse me. May he make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. God offers that to you freely. All you have to do is be willing to receive it. And that's true of all of us, whether we're a Christian worker or whether we don't even quite know if we fully believe, right? God offers that. And so what I am tasked with doing it's not working in order to get the Lord's favor and please him, but it's with being receptive and surrendered and submissive, right? Um, so yeah, this is this idea of the under rower. It originally meant a rower on the lower bank of a trireme, one of the slaves who pulled at the large sweeps or oars, which moved great ships of war through the sea. Some commentators have wished to stress 
and to make it a picture of Christ as the pilot who directs the course of the ship and Paul as the servant who accepts the pilot's orders and labors only as his master directs. That's good. That's good stuff. Um, and then this, this idea of a steward, right? Here are uh, three usages of that word. It is a manager of a household or estate. So uh, Jesus, in fact, had a parable of the unjust steward. This guy was mismanaging his uh, master's affairs. And Jesus actually commended this guy because he was really shrewd in how he handled being fired. Um, and then it could be the public treasurer. This word was used for a, uh, the treasurer of a city. So uh, Paul sent greetings to this, uh, from the city treasurer in Caesarea to Rome. And that, that word was used, the steward was used. And then three, it's one who is entrusted with management in connection with transcendent matters, an administrator. And believe it or not, that's, uh, Paul is not the only one to use this. This goes all the way back to Aristotle, all right? So that's the way the Apostle Paul is using this term here. This person who is, that's entrusted with these transcendent, what does transcendent mean? It means it's above us, beyond us. We don't have natural access to it, right? We have to be given supernatural access to it. It's, in other words, we can't work our way up to the transcendent. The transcendent has to reveal itself to us. God works his way down to us, right? Then he talks about the mysteries of God. Ah, here we go. Paul was writing to a culture saturated in the religious practice of the mystery cults, like Dionysius, Sibylle, Mithra, and Isis. This is what the Lexham Bible Dictionary tells us about these cults. Mystery religions were voluntarily joined and were not based upon ethnicity or social status. People were initiated into mystery religions through rituals. The initiate would then receive secret knowledge about the divine and through various rites would gain unmediated access to the transcendent, remember these beyond us, realities. This differentiated mystery religions from other religions that believe the gods could only be indirectly known. The cult of Dionysius, for example, revolved around ecstatic experiences, drunkenness, orgies, to reach a transcendent mystic connection with the divine. The cult of Artemis bears similarities to the cult of Sibylle. Considering that Sibylle is a mother goddess, the connection likely explains the features of the iconography associated with the Ephesian Artemis, who is depicted as, as a fertility goddess with bulbous protrusions around her chest. She had many breasts. The imagery almost certainly relates to fertility, which likely developed from associations with Sibylle. So now you understand what was going on with these mystery religions. The Apostle Paul uses that term. He says, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. So what he was using was something that was familiar to them. Again, I did work with teenagers for many years. And so as a result, I would be familiar with the movies that they watched, with the music that they listened to. So that when I was trying to give an illustration, it would connect with them. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is seeking to connect with these people who have not most of these Corinthians were not Jewish in their origin, their history. They were Gentiles. They had little exposure to Judaism. Um, so this isn't like the, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, which is obviously uh, written to Jewish folks, right? If there was a practice of mystery religion in Corinth, which is very likely, it may have been an ancient Eleusinian cult. Uh, and uh, let's see, six. This is from Walvard and Zuck. Just across the Saronic Gulf, north of Corinth, lay Eleusis, the center of an ancient mystery religion lauded by Homer and widely, popu uh, yeah, widely popular. Part of the rites of initiation into this pagan religion were washings of purification in the sea, without which no one could hope to experience bliss in the life hereafter. A vicarious participation in the mysteries was not unknown either. Given the Corinthian propensity for distortion in matters of church practice, it was likely that some in Corinth, 
possibly influenced by this Eleusinian mystery, were propounding a false view of baptism, which Paul took up and used as an argument against those who denied the resurrection. Therefore, when Paul speaks of the mysteries of God, it would be really very relevant to his audience. We must discover then ways to communicate the realities of Christ and the experience of the Holy Spirit to the people in our culture and time. Now, I don't think that means you need to be just absolutely saturated in worldliness, but you need to be aware of how people are communicating, right? So on Sunday, I talked a good bit uh, about really separating yourself from the culture. But I didn't say, in fact, I clearly stated that you should not take yourself out of the world, but you need to shine your light within the world. So there needs to be a degree of familiarity with what's going on around you, but that doesn't mean that I need to become part of uh, some of these anti-Christian cultural movements and so forth. Um, so the Apostle Paul is seeking to be relevant here. Uh, more than a tool of communication though, the truth is that the gospel was and is a mystery. So mystery is a way of saying that this, this is something that is not naturally known, mysterious, right? It's somehow revealed to those who are exposed to the revealer of the mystery. The gospel was mysterious because it wasn't obvious to the prophets who were the very prophets that uh, prophesied of, of Christ and, and his coming, but they didn't understand how was, this was all going to work out. But Paul was the one that God revealed that to, and he was the one that expounded it and uh, gave it uh, exegesis and explanation. So uh, perhaps it doesn't seem this way to us because the gospel is not a mystery to us, although it's becoming more mysterious to people in this culture. Even people that go to this church, I'm, you know, the less you attend church and the more you're exposed to what's going on in the culture, the more easily you can simply forget. Not, you know, with any sort of bad motive, not any intention to be, you know, agnostic about the things of God, but we simply become persuaded by the voices that are around us. Well, you work and you're at work more hours than you are at church right? Go to school. Go to school more hours than you are at church. You're at home. You're probably not reading the Bible 24 hours a day. You're probably watching stuff on, you know, a screen. And the majority of that stuff is not going to be oriented toward Christian faith. And even if you watch Christian TV, some of that is a little bit on the goofy side as well, but we won't get into that. I don't watch Christian TV personally. I'm not telling you not to. Um, but there's some weirdness there. Let's just put it there. Um, in the book of Revelation, we learned that, quote, the mystery of God is finished. It's called the mystery of God. In Revelation, the mystery of God is finished at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which inaugurates the bowls of wrath that God will pour out upon the earth at that time. Um, in fact, let me read that passage um, this is from Revelation 10, verses 5 through 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So, if we follow Revelation in a somewhat chronological order, there are seven churches, okay? Seven churches in chapters two and three of Revelation. And then there are seven seals those are seals of this, uh, this document that is written on both sides. It's weighty, heavy document, okay? And then there are seven trumpets, and then there are seven bowls of wrath. So there are four sevens there. Here's how I think this goes down. The seven churches 
are types. This is a message of Christ to the church as a whole. And I think we will find, and I'm, I'm leaning very strongly toward moving away from my original plan uh, to continue in Daniel and to do a brief series on several of the seven churches in Revelation and relate those directly, prophetically to our church. Now, prophetically, I'm not trying to get you to say, oh, Pastor Darrell is a prophet and he's foreseeing the future. And <laughs> we need to speak prophetically by relating the scripture to our lives in reality. And if you're a pastor, you better know what the needs of your people are and how to biblically meet those needs. I think the Lord has a message for our church. Our uh, anniversary is coming up. I haven't made a big deal out of it. Perhaps I should have because uh, July 4th is a Sunday. We started our church on Sunday, July 4th. So in three Sundays, we'll have this Sunday, the following Sunday, this Sunday, which is Father's Day, the following Sunday, and then July 4th. And so I think that I'm gonna look at um, several of the churches in Revelation because I think there's an ongoing message, right? These churches are types. And then, what we have with this scroll that no one could open except the, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That's Jesus. He could open the scroll. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. So each time a seal is broken, we're getting closer to opening the scroll, but the scroll is not open yet. So what I think, those seven seals represent an overview of what we might call the church era or the church age. So we have these seven churches that are types of churches, and then we have the seven seals that are an overview of the church era, which is where we still are. And so you're going to see an overview of all of the events within this scroll, which is actually the Revelation. The book of Revelation is about this scroll. What's going to happen to the earth to end it is in that scroll. But until those seven seals are broken, you don't know what that is. Then seven trumpets sound, and each of those trumpets represents a, uh, a partial judgment on the earth. Every one of them is, a, is partial. A third of the earth is burned up, and a third of the sea is, turns to blood, and a third of the waters are, are polluted, and so forth, right? It's, they're partial. When the seventh trumpet is blown, I think that that's the end of the church age. If there is a separate rapture of the church from the second coming of Christ, it's there. It's after that seventh trumpet. When it says, um, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. That's the conclusion of the gospel. That's the end of gospel preaching on earth because from that point forward, it's all judgment. And God has shown in Revelation at that point that he will separate and protect his people. And that may include a rapture from the earth, right? But he will, we're not destined for wrath. That's not, that's not your end. That's not where you're headed. If you're in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, right? If you have taken his death on the cross as, as your own, then the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. He's not gonna pour more wrath out on you, even if you've made mistakes, and I'm sure you have, and I have. You see, people think, well, I blew it, so now God's gonna punish me. All the punishment was poured out on Jesus. Punishment is payment for what you've done wrong. Now, God will discipline you. That's correction. And that's not pleasant, right? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but in the end, it yields a peaceful fruits of righteousness. So God will correct you, but that's different than punishment. Punishment is just you get what you deserve, right? So that's why we have two, two different views of um, uh, what should happen to criminals, right? So that's why there is the notion of a, a, a penal colony or a penal institution, P-E-N-A-L, for penalty or a correctional institute, right? A correctional facility. The idea there is, 
we're going to take these folks and they're going to be prisoners for this period of time, but we want to turn out a citizen, not a criminal, right? Um, God is seeking to press us and mold us and make us into the image of Christ while we're down here, right? That's the purpose. So I really think that the mystery of God is the gospel. Being a steward of the mystery of God means that he is a manager of, an administrator of the presentation of the gospel. And I believe it's going to end. There will come a day when the gospel is preached no more. And the church and its influence and the Holy Spirit's influence is removed from the earth. And all that will happen then is the seven bowls of wrath. And those are total. The whole earth is impacted by the wrath of God that is poured out. So now you have an overview of Revelation, and that was free, all right? Let me do a brief little statement um, on one of the mystery religions. That uh, So in the wake of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, uh, there was a lot of discussion about Gnosticism and mysteries and so forth. And periodically, if you're online, comes around Christmas time, and you'll see these statements about Jesus. And the statements are something along the lines of, uh, Christians just stole from Mithraism. That's all they did, right? So there was, a, there was another name for this in Rome. It was uh, called the Cult of Sol Invictus, right? The Invincible Son. But that was very connected to Mithra and Mithraism. Now, it's interesting that purportedly Christians borrowed from Mithraism, and Sol Invictus, since Christianity predates Mithraism and Sol Invictus. Jesus was born and died and rose before the institution of Mithraism. And Sol Invictus comes a couple of hundred years after that. But here, here are some statements um, that come from Lee Strobel's uh, The Case for the Real Jesus. Da Vinci, uh, Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown said, nothing in Christianity is original. Writers have claimed that a pagan mystery cult, Mithraism, is really the basis for Christianity. Actually, this is only one of several mystery cults that popular writers have associated with Christianities. Others are Attis, Osiris, Adonis, Dionysius. However, the Persian god Mithras, who was worshipped in the mystery cult called Mithraism, is the closest parallel. So here's a statement. This is the statement, um, and you might have read this online. Okay, usually this is right around Christmas time. You'll read this and it'll shake you up, right? Mm -hmm. It's meant to get you to go, what? Christianity is really just washed over Mithraism. Mithras was born of a virgin in a cave on December 25th, was considered a great traveling teacher, had 12 disciples, promised his followers immortality, sacrificed himself for world peace, was buried in a tomb and rose again three days later instituted a Eucharist or Lord's Supper and was considered the Logos, Redeemer, Messiah, and the way, the truth, and the life. Well, gosh, is Christianity just borrowed from this, huh? That sounds like the gospel to me. Here are the facts. Um, Lee Strobel is, is interviewing a scholar here. He says, how do you respond when people present ancient facts like this? What do you do once you've been told something? Let's break it down. Mithraism as a mystery religion cannot be attested before AD 90. When did Jesus die on the cross? Well, the calendar, although we don't say AD and BC anymore, right? Now we're politically correct. And we say BCE and CE before the common era and common era. But see, the reality is the calendar was set up in the early part of the Middle Ages um, by uh, a, a bishop or a monk. And he calculated it from the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was Anno Domini, A.D., year of our Lord. So all of the years after the birth of Jesus are the current era. All of the years before that are BC, before Christ. So 
Jesus died on the cross and rose somewhere in the vicinity of 33 AD, right? Jesus entered into his ministry when he was 30 and uh, was crucified by the Romans when he was 33. Gordon dates the establishment of the Mithraic mysteries to the reign of Hadrian, which was AD 117 to 138. That's a long time after 33 AD. Know what I'm saying? Mithras was born of a virgin. No, the legend has it that Mithra was born out of a rock. That's a little different than a virgin, I think. Mithras was born in a cave like Jesus. Does the New Testament say Jesus was born in a cave? No, it does not. Okay, so debunk, debunk. Let's continue. Mithras was born on December 25th. Well, Jesus was not born on December 25th. That tradition didn't arise until the fourth century. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke says the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. They wouldn't have done that in the winter. They would have done it in the spring. In fact, the earliest uh, attestation to the birth of Jesus puts it in May. The most likely view is that Jesus was born in late March or early April, right? So the December 25th date was chosen much later, and it was probably chosen so that the church could supersede some of the other winter celebrations that were going on, like the Saturnalia, and so that it could... Uh, contend with this celebration of Sol Invictus, the invincible sun, S-U-N, versus the invincible sun, S-O-N. Christians did that throughout the history. I even did that. So I did a ministry for many years, a drama ministry here in Garland, uh, a couple of them were in Richardson, called House of Judgment. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people came through that. I know with this little bitty church, hard to believe, right? Uh, I calculated it over the period that we did it from 1989 when I started it in the colony until 2008. Uh, I did a thing here in this building that really wasn't uh, House of Judgment. It was uh, <clears throat> more a stage play combined with films um, and it was not attended as well as some of those other events. But we calculated that over 100,000 people came through that. Well, we did it on Halloween or right around Halloween. And it was set up like a haunted house. Now, I didn't come up with that idea. In fact, the pastor that I had in the colony had heard of this, uh, this concept called Judgment House from Alabama, where he was from. And he said, we ought to do that. You want to do that? And I said, no, that's just, what is it? He said, well, what happens is, he said, um, it's, you know, it's kind of like a play and there's teenagers and, uh, you know, one of them accepts Christ and the other one doesn't and they both die and one goes to heaven and one goes to hell. I was like, that kind of sounds exploitive. I don't really like that. I don't. But it kept gnawing on me. I had, the previous year, I had taken a few of my teenagers, and I'm early on in youth ministry, I had taken them through the JC's Haunted House, and I was like, this is demonic. I said, mean, what are we doing? You know, and I know there's churches that are like, Halloween, don't celebrate Halloween, it's evil. Well, it is pretty much evil. But it doesn't mean kids can't go out and get candy and dress up and stuff. I mean, you know, you can handle these things differently. So the next year, I was like, hey, I got my youth group together. There were 30 kids sitting in a living room, and I just threw it out to them. I said, you guys want to do this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they were so excited. <laughs> and this was a great group of kids, man. They were incredible leaders. I still have a lot of them on my, on my Facebook. And uh, so I said, okay. I said, uh, Pastor Bill said that this thing is called Judgment House. But I said, what do you guys think of the name House of Judgment? <gasps> oh, yeah, yeah, they loved it. They thought it was a great idea. So I was like, okay, you know, I have no idea what this, what this is going to be like. And this is First Baptist Church, the colony, which is a fairly good-sized church. But the biggest thing that I had ever done there was a lock-in, right? We'd done these lock-ins, and we'd taken kids to Denton, usually Denton, Texas, because my roommate in seminary was the uh, college minister at First Baptist Church Denton. So we would take our kids up to there. They had this big, uh, kind of like the athletic center that First Baptist Church uh, Garland has, 
real nice. And we would take them there, spend the night, whatever. And that was like 200 kids. And that was a lot, you know, because my youth group, like I said, you know, we had like 30 in the youth group and we might have 40, you know, or something on some event. But yeah, that was awesome. The first year we did House of Judgment, we had 550 people come through. I was like, whoa. So I wrote another story the next year, the first play I had ever written. So I wrote another story the next year. The next year, the numbers doubled. We had like 11, 1200 people that came through. The next year, the numbers doubled again. We had like 2000 people that went through. The last year, that was all that we could take. We had like 2200 that didn't double again, but that's all we could take. So then I came out here and I came to Freeman Heights Baptist Church, which is over by Bussey Middle School. And uh, they immediately adopted it. And um, we, you know, we made a, a, you know, a, a maze, if you will, through their church. And basically what it is, is it's a play. So when you watch a play, normally you sit in a room and they keep moving set pieces and you watch the play unfold in front of you. What makes this so um, enjoyable, especially to young people around Halloween, is they're in groups. Teenagers love to be in groups. And we have dark hallways. We have smoke machines. We have black lights. And they move through the dark hallway and they go into a room and they stand like an audience in the room. And then theatrical lights come up and a scene happens in front of them. Lights go down, they go to the next scene. A story unfolds in front of them. Now, the only thing that was the same in every house of judgment is that it was about teenagers. It was about their choices. It was about the earthly and eternal consequences of their choices. And they, there were always teenagers who died as the result of their choices. And you saw what happened in the afterlife. You saw them stand before Christ in judgment. And you saw those that rejected Christ be taken away from the presence of God and symbolically be separated from God and, and have to endure the punishment of their own sins. And those who had received Christ went into the presence of Christ, right? So brought it out here to Garland. The first year that I did it out here was um, 1993 and we have 4,500 people that came through, right? So I had it a couple of years at Freeman Heights and we had people standing out in the front lawn of Freeman Heights for four and five hours. So then we moved it over to The Rock, which is this building that Freeman Heights owned, and we built this maze through The Rock. And the first year that we were able to get in there, the numbers jumped to 7,000 and then 10,000. And then once again, we hit a plateau because we couldn't put any more people through. So the last year we did it there, it was over 11,000. So then we made it an independent entity and we went to Richardson. We got an old shopping center. We built walls, hardest thing I've ever done, by the way. And that year we had 13,500 people go through. We had 1,800 people go through in one night. We were bringing them in in groups of 80 every 20 minutes. So why do I tell this story in the midst of this? Because we were doing something that was relevant to that time of year. Christians did this all along. Christians have always done this. We could say, cancel Halloween. Or we can find another way of doing it since everybody's so interested in it and point people to the gospel. That's what we have happening here, okay? All right, so the rest of these, uh, these deals. Uh, Mithras was a teacher with 12 disciples. No, Mithras was a god. He was not a teacher. Mithras followers promised Oh, we're promised immortality. That's inferred, but what's new? That's religion. Mithras sacrificed himself. He did not. He killed a bull. Mithras was buried and raised. We know nothing about Mithras' death, so there could be no resurrection. Mithras was considered good shepherd, way, truth, life, logos, redeemer, savior. No, that's reading Christian theology into this. Mithras had a Eucharist meal. Well, that was common for all uh, mystery religions. They had a common meal. So, um, was a Mithraic rite called the, taro, the Tarobilium, the basis for the Christian belief in Christ's blood and sacrifice for sin. What is the Tarobilium? The initiate was placed in a pit with a grate over it and a bull was slaughtered above, allowing the blood to baptize him. Well, it's an anachronism to base Christ's sacrifice on the practice since the first Attested sacrifice is in the Addis cult in AD 160. 
Yeah, that's 125 years after Jesus. Who's influencing who here? Christianity had a powerful influence on the Roman world, right? And they were seeking to fight against that, right? Um, in the end, uh, uh, Strobel is, is interviewing uh, Edward uh, Yamauchi, a, uh, a historian, and he asked, do you see any evidence that Christianity borrowed any of its beliefs from Mithraism? And he says, not really. They were rivals in the second century and later, right? So the last thing I want to do is I want to present this statement and then we're done. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful, faithfulness, faithfulness <laughs> comes before leadership. If you can't be consistent, you can't lead. You see, there are people with talent. There are people with education, with experience. But if they can't be consistent, they can't lead. If you can't be there, I can't trust you to lead, right? So we got kids upstairs. We got a great need for leaders upstairs to help with our kids ministry. Because we got a lot of kids. For a church our size, we got a lot of kids, right? I may be a single pastor and you know, that might seem like it would just be a church full of single adults. We have plenty of single adults in this church. We have a lot of families. We have a lot of kids. But these ladies need to be able to trust the people that come and take care of the kids. Faithfulness is absolutely essential. It's just central. In fact, if you're faithful, God will take your availability and he will give you the ability that you need. You might feel unqualified. But if you'll be available, then God will give you what you need to do it, okay? So next week, um, we're going to continue on. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about God judging us and people seeking to judge us. And, and just, you know, as a way to kind of predicate that, if I remember, I posted something here recently. Somebody else shared it. One of my friends shared it. And then one of her friends went on to say, Pastor Daryl should not have shared that. It was wrong for him to say that. It was wrong for him to do that. See, when Jesus said, do not judge, you will be judged, he was talking precisely about that kind of fault finding. And this dude, I don't even know, he's supposed to be a Christian. But see, the great thing is, I don't have to fight him. I don't have to defend myself because he's not my judge. In fact, He's not even on the jury. Think about that. When you have people that are riding on you and finding fault in you and saying you're doing this wrong and that wrong. You know, if somebody loves you, they want to help you. They want to heal you. They don't want to find fault in you. Amen.